Today's scripture comes from Galatians 2, verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You may be seated. You think short verse equals short sermon, and that's why you smiled. I can stretch that verse out for a long time. Let me pray as we get into this. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it and that we can seek your face by dwelling and abiding in your word. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see today, that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us hearts to love, that we would know that we have loved, have been loved in Christ, Uh, that we would see and that we would hear and that we would believe the fullness of your love to us. And we ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 14, 31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Now, in the first text from Proverbs, chapter 19, God says that, in a certain sense, being kind to the poor is being kind to him. But it's flipped, and in chapter 14 we see if you show contempt for the poor, it is though you are showing contempt for him. Tim Keller wrote a book called Generous Justice that I would highly recommend. Here's what he says these verses are getting at. If you insult the poor, you insult God. The principle is that God personally identifies very closely with the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant the most powerless and vulnerable members of society. When the Old Testament says God identifies with the poor, that is a strong statement, but it is still basically a figure of speech. Not until you come to the New Testament can you fully grasp of the degree to which God has done this. Here's what he means. In the Old Testament, God identifies with the poor in general. In the New Testament, through the incarnation of Jesus through his life and work and ministry and his death and in his resurrection, he identifies with the poor. In the incarnation of Christ, God is identifying with the poor in a literal way. It's not figurative. It's not an idea. Jesus was born in a barn. His first crib was a feeding trough. Jesus' parents were good Jewish people, and so his earthly parents, when they had a firstborn son, they did what they were supposed to do, and they took that firstborn son to be dedicated at the temple, and they brought an offering that they were told to bring. But the offering that they bought was the, uh, brought was the offering that was prescribed for the poorest of the poor in their nation. There was two pigeons that were given as an offering. Jesus lived among the poor. He ministered to the poor. He himself said he had nowhere to lay his head. But he didn't only minister among the poor. Clearly didn't avoid them. At the end of his life, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He had a last meal with his disciples in a borrowed room. And when he was beaten and he was about to be crucified, he was stripped naked and the soldiers gambled for his only valuable asset in life, his robe. Jesus died as a man who was naked, broke, and discarded, and then he was placed into a borrowed tomb. God identifies with the poor. So as we continue to study this letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, what we've decided is that we would make a few pit stops along the way to hit 
something that we might not be able to give enough time to if we were just moving through it verse by verse and, and thought by thought and passage by passage. And so today we're doing what we've called excursus number two. If you've got one of the Galatians booklets that we have, you'd notice that we've got a few weeks planned in our study of Galatians where we are going to do a bit deeper dive on a topic in the midst of this series, walking through this letter to the Galatian churches. Let me read the verse again. Verse 10, Galatians chapter 2 says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, talking about what the Bible says on a, on a bigger scope, kind of front to back, Genesis to Revelation, talking about what the Bible says about caring for the poor, remembering the poor, in some ways is like trying to fit the ocean into a cup. And I know that. And so what I'm trying to do today is to just bring you at least a cup of the vast ocean that there is for what we're called to do and how we're called to live in light of who God is as we remember the poor. The way that we're going to look at this, we're going to look at the wider context of Galatians 2.10 and figure out why is Paul actually bringing this. Then we're going to look at the whole of Scripture, and I'm going to try and show you a few verses of the hundreds that there are on why we should care for the poor and how we should care for the poor and remember the poor. And then what we're going to do is try and translate that into some big-picture practical ideas of what this might look like today for us in 2018 in the city of Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. And then I want us to look at how the gospel of grace that Paul is preaching to the churches in Galatia is a life that can lead to remembering the poor. How the gospel of grace leads us to remember the poor. So here are my four points if you're taking notes. The Galatian context for remembering the poor. The biblical revelation for remembering the poor. The practical outworking for remembering the poor. And the gospel motivation for remembering the poor. The Galatian context, biblical revelation, practical outworking, and gospel motivation. Some of you didn't think I could do a sermon with four points, and here I am. <laughs> I've got three points every week. Some of you have accused me of maybe some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder. Four points just for you. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Who in this text are the they? Only they asked us. To remember the poor. Now, last week when we were in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, we saw that Paul and Barnabas and their younger disciple Titus had made a trip from the mission base in Antioch down to Jerusalem, and they were there to deliver a gift to the poor, deliver a gift to the elders of the church to be distributed among those who had need. This is what it said, Acts 11, verses 27 to 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29 says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is how they ended up in Jerusalem in the first place. Times were hard for the church in Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea. And we're told that there was a famine, which would have made life very difficult. But we also know that there were social and economic conditions that made it very difficult for the first Christians, particularly in Jerusalem and Judea. Following Jesus came with a cost. And I don't know if you know that, but following Jesus comes with a cost. Some of that cost was the disconnecting of familial networks and business connections that these believers would have had because they began to follow a different God that would have made them a different strata of society. They would have segregated them from those around them. 
and would have made it very difficult for them to make ends meet. So the church there, being notoriously poor, had other churches from other cities and other regions that were helping out as much as they could. So when Paul and Barnabas and Titus, when they make their trip, the initiative of the trip was actually to present a financial gift to the elders of the church in Jerusalem that they might then distribute it as any had need. Now last week in verses 1 through 9 of Galatians chapter 2, we saw how when they got there, they met with James and Cephas and John. Cephas is Peter and John. And it says that they added nothing to the gospel that Paul was preaching. Look at this in verses 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. But then in verse 10 says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, part of this comes as a natural consequence of what I said last week about the inclusivity of the gospel. This is a gospel for all people. This is a gospel for Jews. This is a gospel for Gentiles. This is a gospel for all stratas of society. It's not just for the poor and it's not just for the rich. This is a gospel for all ethnicities. There is no breakdown or limitation to whom the gospel may be received. We talked about that last week. We also talked about the unity of the gospel. And the point is that there was a unified gospel message that was going out to the world. There is only one gospel. There's only one gospel that unites us because there's actually only one God who saves us, which means that we've all been united by a common Savior and we are all united to one another. So that was part of the work that was happening as Paul was out in the Gentile churches, the ones who were not full of Jewish Christians, as they were taking funds, raising funds, and bringing that money to care for the poor in Jerusalem. They were doing that because there is only one unified gospel. Now that means that when one part of the body of Christ is suffering, we all suffer. So when the church in Judea was suffering with physical needs and physical poverty, the other churches rallied together to do their best to support them in this time of trial. Now that's actually nothing new. That is front to back in the Bible. God has made remembering the poor a priority. It just so happens that the context of this verse in Galatians has to do with the immediate needs of the churches. And it includes care and concern for all people. Here's why I say it, can, it includes care and concern for all people. Later on in Galatians chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10, this is what Paul's going to write to the churches there. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Um, can I just say this to some of you who have grown up in the church and maybe you've been followers of Jesus for a very long time, and you may have heard this passage of Scripture read and preached upon, and it says, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And you have heard that, especially those who are of the household of faith, used to negate the first half of verse 10. It doesn't say only to those who are of the household of faith. It says, let us do good to everyone. Now, I don't know where that happened, but somewhere along the line in North American Christianity, we started to get this perception that we're only supposed to take care of people who are in here. That's just not true. We're called to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. I think there's an importance to practice the one another's of Scripture, but it does not negate those who are in need who are outside of our community. Let us do good to... Everyone is nothing new. This is in line with the rest of Scripture. So that is the first point about the Galatian context that this verse was written into. Secondly, let's look 
at the biblical revelation for remembering the poor. Because there's more to see. See, remembering the poor, it's not like some kind of nice way to say, hey, I was thinking about you. Right? It's not an intellectual exercise. Remembering the poor takes on the active sense of making material provision for the poor. It's remembering to care for the poor. And I want us to notice first that this is based upon the nature and character of God. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 19 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Look at verse 18. He says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. He says, when you were homeless refugee immigrants, God cared for you, therefore you care for them. The fatherless, the widow, and the orphan were the most vulnerable people in a society such as the society we see described historically in the scriptures. They still are. See, we remember the poor because God remembers the poor. We desire justice because God desires justice. Something in us, created in the image of God, there is something in us that is wired for justice to be done. It's because that is his nature and his character. It goes on and it gives us a command further on in Deuteronomy. In the next chapter, just a few verses later, Deuteronomy 11 verse 1 says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. That is the command to keep his rules and commandments always that follows after this one that reveals that he is the one who cares for the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. See, the revelation of the character of God guides the ethics and the life of the church. That is so important for us to see. The actions of the church are guided by the nature and character of who God has revealed himself to be. We remember the poor because he remembers the poor. Um, in a really wonderful paper on this topic, my scholar friend, Miriam Kovalishin, is part of our community group. She says, in Christian theology, any definition of justice must be rooted in the character and work of God and the subsequent shaping of God's people as his image bearers to be people who reflect his character and love for the marginalized of this world. She goes on to say, to be righteous and to act justly is to act in accordance with the very character of God, something we know only because he has covenanted with his people and revealed himself to us. See, apart from God's initiative and revealing himself to us, we would not know what he's like and we would not know what to do. But because he has revealed himself to us and we've got a lot of data on who he is and what he's like, we now know how we're called to live with relationship to the poor. He's shown us. Like just hundreds of verses, literally hundreds and hundreds of verses that we could go to in scripture. I could read verses all afternoon and you could sit there overwhelmed by the wealth of information we have on how to handle this from the scriptures. And we see this kind of thing all over Deuteronomy. We see it in the Psalms and I'm not going to go there. We see it in the prophets and I could go to all the prophets and talk about this, but I'm going to take you to but one. I'm going to take you to Isaiah. Isaiah 1 verse 17 says, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, 
plead the widow's cause. See, this is who he is. When God's people were in seasons of fasting and prayer, um, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he tells them the kind of fast that he requires. I want you to see this in verse 3 of Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, 3 says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, God, and you take no knowledge of it? It says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Just stop there for a second. God's people are saying, Hey, we're over here. We're the big time spiritual ones. You know, the real deal. We're fasting and praying. Why aren't you noticing us? And God says back to them, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. He says, you might be in fasting and prayer, but you're oppressing those who are around you. Look at what it says in verse 5 down through verse 7. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Look at this. Is not this the fast that I choose, he says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? To break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is all over the Bible. Here's what Jesus said when he was talking about laying up treasure in heaven. Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. That's pretty clear. Here's what Jesus' brother James said. James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying, yeah, I know you say you have faith. Let me tell you that the faith you have is displayed through the things that you do. He's talking about how the faith you have gets put on display as the transformative work of God's Spirit in your life makes visible to those around you the goodness and transformative work that He's doing. Something is going to happen as a consequence of coming to place of faith in God. Saying that there will be a practical need met of the people around you. How about the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. That's a great handle to give yourself. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Our love is based on his love for us. Look at verse 16 again. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Do you see how the way that we are called to remember the poor is based upon the nature and character of God? Do you see this? The way that he has served us means this is the way we serve others. See, our behavior is patterned after the character of God. We remember the poor because he remembered the poor. So we've seen this, the Galatian context for verse 10 of chapter 2 to be written. We've seen a little bit of the biblical revelation of remembering the poor. And now three point three, the practical outworking of remembering the poor. A practical outworking of this. Here's the thing. I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. We do care around here. We give oversight to the body of Christ City as elders. But as a pastor and Bible teacher, I now feel like I've told you what I'm confident of, and I now depart into waters unknown to me. In a certain sense, this is not my strength. Talking about how to help the poor, the hurting, the broken, the destitute. Talking about the practicalities of it. I don't feel like I'm well equipped to do that. And tell you what the scripture says, I can lead you to that point. But here's the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. Uh, I am but one member. And there are many of you who have given your lives to learning and growing and being trained and equipped for the practical implementation of the truth that I've just spoken. So though I feel out of depth myself, I think I have a few things to say because I'm drawing on those around me. What I did this week is I emailed a friend of ours whose name is Alita Thomas. Alita is well-versed in all of this kind of stuff. And I said, hey, Alita, I feel out of my depth talking about this. I can tell everybody what the Bible says, but practically speaking, I only know a few things. Like I know that the way we want to help people, our motive can be right, but sometimes the means can be wrong. We can actually go about hurting people and the situation can be maybe diminished or made worse because of the actions that we give ourselves to. Good motive, wrong method. So I said, help me. Alita, by the way, is a podcaster who now lives in Edmonton. Because I hate it when people leave, Ed- leave Vancouver to go anywhere, especially Edmonton. <laughs> she met this guy who came and swept her off her feet and took her to the Arctic tundra that is Edmonton. So Alita, Nick, shout out to you on the podcast. Go Oilers. <laughs> I asked her what she thought. Here's what she said. One of the main things I immediately thought of that's worth noting is that poverty is not simply an economic issue. And thus, a truly transformative approach to walking with the poor means addressing the emotional, social, physical, political, and economic factors altogether that keep people or whole communities and social groups trapped in systemic poverty or marginalization. She says it's a bigger issue. Here's the practical outworking of it. She continued on. So in this, remembering the poor can look like a wide array of things. Education, health care, Conflict resolution and peacemaking, humanitarian intervention, economic empowerment, working against slavery, abuse, and social norms that are in opposition to the gospel, for example, castes or racial or gender discrimination. You know, things like economic empowerment, we talk about microloans being a far more helpful way to help people out of poverty than simply giving a gift. Giving vocational training and equipping people in different fields of industry so that they might be able to earn a living. Microloans are better than just pure gifts. When we look at other things that are on here, conflict resolution and peacemaking is actually Alita's specialty. 
things that you can step into a situation and bring an end to hostility. And you can actually, in general, in that kind of way, on a micro level, very small level, you can end hostility and allow people to flourish in a greater way. The point is, it's easier to get involved in, and there are more ways to serve the poor, and remember the poor than you might think. But it's also more of a complex issue than we might think on first pass. But that doesn't mean we should ignore it and move on. My fear, even in talking about this, is that we go, wow, that's a big problem. Somebody else will probably be able to deal with it. It's too easy to do that. So I sat this week and I I thought and prayed about this. What would be a win for Christ City when we talk about the practical outworking of remembering the poor? What would be a bit of a goal for us to have? First, that we would have eyes to see the needs around us. Sometimes we get so caught up in the search of our own comfort, for our own comfort, or the search for our own successes or joys. Sometimes we've, we've trained ourselves not to see the needs around us. So, so we need to learn how to see needs as they arise. We need to be able to have eyes to see the way God sees, that we would remember the poor as he remembers the poor. Secondly, that we would have compassionate hearts to take action whenever those needs arise. And that we would act with sacrificial generosity whenever we can. Eyes to see the needs and a compassionate heart to respond as needed. Uh, This happened a number of years ago. And you mostly will remember, I'm sure, the picture of the young boy fleeing the conflict in Syria who was washed up on the beach. And a photographer took the picture of the boy who died just trying to get out of a conflict zone that he had nothing to do with. And how the hearts of the Western world were there gripped by that. Even though we knew before what was happening, we needed a visual. And we saw the visual. And you, the body of Christ City, responded and said, well, we should do something. We don't know what to do, but we should do something. And so what we did is we contacted our mission agency and we raised some funds that were sent over to Germany. Where they were taking in a million migrant refugees. We took some money and sent it to them so that they could hire Arabic-speaking staff in the churches and that they could actually start to help some of the refugees who are arriving. One thing that we did. Here's what I love about you, the body of Christ City. A number of you said, that's not good enough. Writing a check is easy. Maybe we should get ourselves kind of more involved locally. Can we bring a family in? And so we had a team of people who formed and said they wanted to bring a refugee family in. And so... We made plans to do that. We raised funds to do that. We saw the first family come and live in the house next door, which we own. And we saw that family come from a different part of the world and a story that I would love to share, but I'm not at liberty to share. And we saw them flee conflict and come here. And we received them and we've loved them as best we can. And the team of people who are in charge of that and leading that are so wonderful. And so they are now moved into BC Housing. There's currently another family living there. This family is fleeing the Syrian conflict. Five children moving to Canada to start over. It's seeing a need and saying, how can we respond? We're not sponsoring this family, but it's actually people who are community group leaders at Christ City and their friends who have sponsored this family. And when the timing came up, it just so happened in God's goodness to us and to them that the house was just vacated and they were able to move in. And we have another group of people coming, and I think I'm also not at liberty to share where they're from or what's happening yet. But we have another group of refugees coming as well. Our hope is to perpetuate that and to continue serving in that way. Look, we're not solving the global refugee crisis as a local church, but we're doing something. It's seeing a need and doing what you can. 
And I think we need to train ourselves to think that way. It's so much easier to do nothing. So we're just trying to do something. And we're trying imperfectly. But I think that's coming out of a compassionate heart that is hopefully pointing back to the goodness of God and his compassion for the poor. So first, that we would have eyes to see. Second, compassionate hearts to take action. And third, that we would have the wisdom and patience to discern how to help. If you want to learn more about what I mean, there's a great book called When Helping Hurts. The subtitle of the book is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. Uh, It's written by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, and I think it would be a wonderful resource to you, especially if you were driven in this way or you feel compelled in this way. Send me an email. I'll send you a list of books that will keep you busy for the rest of the year if you want. Eyes to see the need, compassionate hearts to move when we see the need, and the wisdom to discern with patience how we can help best. I think that would be a win for us as a church. When we think about the practical outworking of remembering the poor, there's a question that I want to ask, and I think we need to ask, because we're not alone in our city in doing good things. There are lots of organizations that do great work. They have nothing to do with Christianity. They have no visit, uh, biblical vision of, of caring for the poor in, in, through the character of God being revealed to us. It has nothing to do with Christian faith whatsoever, and they're doing really good work. But what's the difference between Christian social activism and secular social activism? What's the difference? You might say, well, the end result is very similar. You probably wouldn't be wrong. But the motive by which we do the things we do is very important. Uh, We live in what we've talked about around here as a post-Christian culture. Not meaning that we've somehow passed Christianity as a viable option for belief, but that we have moved to a place where uh, the realities and truths of the secular world around us are actually defined over and against Christian faith. We haven't moved on from Christian faith, but, but things are being defined and the nature of truth is defined at times against what Christian faith has held for 2,000 years. It means we need to pay attention to not only what we're doing, but the motive and the means by which people do it. Uh, Mark Sayers, who's written a great book on this topic, says post-Christian thinking wants to reject the truth claims of Christianity, but still wants to feast on the fruit of Christian faith and practice. So post-Christian, secular social justice, people who are doing good things, not in the name of Jesus, a lot of that is actually built on the historical foundation of Christian care for the poor and Christian care for the marginalized of this world. There is a 2,000-year history that I can take you through of Christian history of caring for the poor and the marginalized when there were at times not others in the society doing it. Great examples are when there was plagues that hit ancient cities, like Rome. When the plagues hit the ancient cities, the pagan philosophers who were writing and giving historical accounts of what was happening were absolutely shocked when they saw their own doctors and their own people of maybe higher standing in the culture, leaving the city, fleeing the sickness. And they weren't shocked about that. They were shocked that there were Christians who were going in. They're saying, don't you know there's a plague? And they say, yes, but don't you know that person was created in the image of God? I'm going to go care for the poor. I'm going to care for the sick. We're going to make sure the dying are not alone. We stand on the foundation that's been laid of ministry that's based upon the foundational character of God that has been going on for thousands of years. So post-Christian social justice, 
wants to hang on to the ethics of the kingdom of God minus the king. This is what Mark Sayers says. He says, we like all the fruit, post-Christian culture likes all the fruit of the kingdom of God, caring for the poor, doing right by the widow and the orphan, caring for the refugee, but we don't want to do it in the name of God. We want the kingdom of God minus the king. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, we say, I don't think it works that way. So when we go about doing Christian social activism, we're doing so in the name of the king, not apart from him. Not only looking for the results, but actually looking to the foundation of our motivation to go ahead and do this and care for the poor. It's not an either or within the church. You'll find this within the church in the Western culture in 21st century. There's groups of people who will go out and they say it's all about evangelism, only evangelism. We're just here to share the gospel. But they don't do any kingdom work in terms of feeding the clothing or caring for the poor. And then you've got other people who say, well, it's actually all about just feeding and clothing and caring for the poor. Let's not worry about evangelism. Let's take care of these people because they're human beings. And, and you know, they get online, and if you want to get into American Twitter outrage, you can hop on Twitter and just see how people just combat each other on this. And they're like, evangelism's everything. And these people go, care for the poor is everything. And I'm just going, yes. <laughs> yes. It's pretty hard to hear the gospel if you're hungry evangelistic people. But people who are caring for the poor, you're just doing the work that everybody else around you is doing. It's the kingdom of God minus the king. Preach the gospel. There's something greater happening. Yes, care for needs. Yes, care for the poor. But also, oh, do you hear the good news of the kingdom of Jesus? Oh, that the greatest problem you have is not that you're hungry or poor or naked. The greatest problem you have is that your sin is a barrier between you and God, but Christ Jesus himself has removed that barrier. Oh, do you hear the good news? Be clothed and fed. Christian social justice and the work of remembering the poor is not built on an ideal that is defined by humans, but on an ideal that is revealed to us by our creator God. That is the source and the foundation and the motivation of why we do what we do. To quote Miriam again, she said, to develop a Christian Biblical theology of social justice, this must be based in the character of God or we will wander into idolatry, worshiping a God in our image who approves of what we approve of and condemns that which we dislike. It's got to all be about Jesus. That's the Galatian context. That's the biblical revelation. That's some of the practical outworking. Fourth, the gospel motivation for remembering the poor. In a certain sense, we've moved from the beginning of this message to now by looking at the why we're supposed to do this to looking at what we do. And I think this actually is how. This is how we're supposed to do this. Look at Luke 18, verses 18 to 23. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. 
So the question I have is how is it hardworking people can part with their hard-earned wealth for the sake of the poor? How is it that hardworking people can be so motivated to part with their wealth for the sake of the poor? I think there's two ways we can give. When we give, we can do it to get the warm fuzzies where we feel like we're truly enlightened, generous people. And what happens is we take credit for that. But we aren't truly giving because in our giving, in that way, we actually gain a sense of pride and we feel good about it. Not that we shouldn't feel good about it every time we give, but we're doing it for that goal. I want to call that transactional generosity. There's a transaction that's happening. I give, and what I receive back is that warm, fuzzy, I'm a good person. That's transactional generosity. I'd rather live in a city full of people who practice transactional generosity than people who are greedy. It's not a bad thing. I'm just telling you, I think there's two ways that we can give. The second way, I think, is, is a Christian way of giving. We can give as recipients of the revelation of the character of God. And what happens is the affections that we have for God are so stirring and so transformative that we are empowered into a life of spirit-filled generosity. We're changed. There's a fundamental change in us where our affections for God begin to lead the way as opposed to us doing good to feel good. There's a difference between those two things. Uh, the 19th century uh, preacher Thomas Chalmers, this is what he said. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It is only when through faith in Jesus Christ, as we are received as God's children, that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us and the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires. This is the only way that deliverance is possible. So here's what he's getting at. Here's the point of what he's saying. If you're captivated by money, it is impossible to be truly generous. And the only way to be truly generous is where you don't get the credit. The only way to be truly generous is where God is the only one who is glorified. The only way to do that is when you have a deeper affection for God than the things you're holding on to. See, if we can give like Jesus, we, we can give like Jesus knowing that in Jesus we have everything we need. We are allowed to be, we can be detached from those things that grab our hearts, that we're so captivated by. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, that he left behind the riches of heaven and entered into an earthly existence. Fully God and fully man, born the incarnate Son of God, born into poverty, that he left behind eternal riches to be born into poverty, to die for us. In his poverty, we become rich. I love that Paul the Apostle chucks that into the middle of a letter when he's doing a fundraiser. That is the only thing that can motivate us to rightly give. Acts 20, verse 35. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. This is Paul the Apostle as well. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how himself, he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Uh, Let me close with this quote from Robert Murray McShane. He's a Scottish preacher. And he was preaching on this verse, Acts 20, verse 35. Here's what he said. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection one. My money is my own. Answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection two. The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Option three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew the thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much more, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Christ City, in all that we do, may God allow us to be a people who remember the poor. Would you stand as we respond?